0: This episode of Love & Radio is a collaboration with our friends at Amnesty International UK.
1: The routines become a big part of your life. You start organizing your day around routines, at least I did. Most of the guys, they either went insane or became catatonic. They would into themselves... I've seen men reduced to screaming. I've seen men convert to being babies, curling in fetal positions and just laying there. I've seen men uh, beat their heads against the bars. I've seen uh, the brutality of security who have no training and they're unequipped to deal with guys when they have these breakdowns. Their solution is to lock them in the dungeon which is just another form of solitary confinement. And this you know, submission. I don't know if I can find the words to even give the listener an idea of how horrible it is to be in solitary confinement. 44 years is a long time.
0: From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, 44 Years, featuring Albert Woodfox.
1: The overwhelming majority of my life was in prison. But my earlier years, right here in New Orleans... I was at a parade about 12, 13, somewhere up in there. And I remember uh, this guy had this beautiful pair of bees, white. I just knew those bees were meant for my mom. So like I'm doing everything, trying to attract his attention, you know, I'm jumping up, hey, mister, mister over here, throw me the bees, you know. So he threw the bees. And this little white girl, she must have been about 12 years old, come out of nowhere. We both grabbed the bees at the same time, and she's like, these are mine. these are mine." I'm like, no, this is for me, this is for my mom. And I'm hollering at the guy, hey, tell her these mine, these mine, you know. So he started pointing at me, you know, telling her that the the bees were for me, you know. And she kind of like whipped them out of my hand, and they broke. Bees was just flying everything. And she says like, you fucking nigga it was the first time i had ever the word nigger which was commonly used then and even now in in black neighborhoods but it had no racial connection to it and uh i'm sorry you know the 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 thing thing about pain is it's always fresh no matter how long between the time you experience the pain and Every time you talk about it, you know, and I could feel it, you know. And that was the first time that I really experienced what I would say, you know, direct racism. And I've always lived with that pain. See, it's kind of hard to put in words, you know, as I look back on my life, you know, but... I was very good at being a petty criminal. You know, I spent a lot of time in the French Quarter, you know, hustle tourists and stuff for money, odd works, waiter jobs, breaking cars, breaking houses, shoplift, a lot of encounters, you know, with the police. It was kind of like a ride of passage in my neighborhood. I think they referred to it now as Street Cringe the more you encounter the police, the more experience you have, you come out on the other side. There wasn't a lot of things that inspired African-Americans at that time. I didn't have dreams of wanting to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or astronaut, or any of those things, because there were no images, at least none that I knew of, you know? My dream was just to make it from one day to the next. My mom, she fought valiantly. and you know, she had five boys and one girl. She was trying to protect all of us on our own, you know? So I couldn't hear what she was trying to say, but I could hear the the calling on the street. Black man went to trial back in those times, in the 60s. 99.9% of the time, he had an all-white jury. And they were gonna always find him guilty. I had caught an armed robbery charge and I was sentenced 50 years. The day that I went and got sentenced, I managed to escape. I saw a lapse in insecurity. A friend of mine who was on the chair at the time got out, but when he got out, he, he snuck and brought me a gun and hit it in the bedroom. When we got on the elevator, after everybody had been sentenced, I just used a gun and forced a, a deputy to, to take us to the basement. I escaped from the courtroom and made my way to Harlem, New York. Well, most people that were in the party, you hear them just say the party, you know. But the official name was Black kind Panther of Party for Self-Defense. First time I'd ever encountered women of the caliber, of the. Black Panther, you know, proud, knowledgeable, confident, very, very beautiful, you know. My initial thing was to try to just get with them, you know, but every time, you know, I'd hit on one of them, they'd be talking about the revolution and protection for the people in the community and stuff, and they would invite me to come around by the office. One thing I noticed for the very first time, I didn't see fear, you know, there was always this look. You could sense the fear in black people, fear of everything, fear of living, fear of dying. But these many women were like fearless, you know, and they were like moving through the community and they had such a command of themselves and what they were doing. And I noticed a couple of times that the police would be patrolling, and for the first time I saw the fear in them. I began to realize that I was not a bad person. That I was a victim of a racist society, and that it was almost preordained that I would wind up in prison. All the things I had heard, all of a sudden, they started to resonate. Uh, probably the term to use—an an awakening. You know, that was the beginning of who I am now and what I believe in. And so it's very apparent that the police, only in our community, not for our security, but the security of the. Uh, and the community, and also to see that uh, the quo kept A lot of groups at that time, they talk and they reel and they march and stand where the Panthers. The Panthers were engaged in direct action. A basic you know, they had a ten-point program, you you want self-determination, demand for jobs, housing medical care, some kind of black history be taught in, in, in schools. Suck, the of that was uh, you know, pretty much unheard of at that time. We and of black I don't think anyone thought that the party would become so popular so quick and have such an impact socially to the point where J. Edgar Hoover declared the party the number one threat to internal security. In 1969, Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. Do you feel the nation is in trouble? I think very right definitely is. What is the answer? The answer is the biggest law enforcement. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. How about justice? You hear a lot about justice with law enforcement. Justice is merely incidental to law and order. Eventually, I got arrested. In the state of New York, you know, the judge ruled I had to come back to Louisiana, and you know I was a fugitive from justice, and so I was retired to Orleans Parish Prison. Then they sent me to Angola. The reason it's called Angola, because it used to be a big slave plantation. And the overwhelming majority of the slaves that came from the country of Angola in Africa. It's a plantation prison. It was designated the most violent prison in America. 71, 72, 73, and 74 were some of the bloodiest years in the history of Angola. In 1971, there were 82 stabbings of inmates. Three of them died. Died by stabbing. We're putting you in Angola, and you're going to die there. You've got desperate men on your hands because they have nothing to live for. And then you guys see no hope for a tomorrow or a future. Well, <laughs> when I first came to Angola, the only people carrying guns were prisoners.
0: Boyle says there were 200 armed convict guards who abused and tortured the other inmates. There was rampant rape, a prisoner slave trade. Inmates were so afraid of stabbings, they slept with
1: J.C. JCPenney catalogs tied to their chests. I witnessed a lot of brutality, a lot of exploitation. Food and stuff that was designated for the inmate population, uh, security people would take it. I think the hardest for me was the Watching these young kids come in there barely, you know, 17, some of them just making 18. And guys raping them and then forced them into a sex slave market that existed in population, you know. And I started to just talk to guys. Talking to guys about the conditions of the prison, the racism and the corruption of the administration and stuff we deserve to be treated better than basically like animals. Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox went to the Louisiana State Penitentiary in 1972. Wallace had robbed a bank. Woodfox was... You know, I knew a harm. We were in a parish together, but he was on a different tier. Well, Albert and I and uh, a few other brothers, we come together and we begin to re-educate these guys. He was pretty much doing the same thing, organizing, trying to educate guys and raise their level of conscience. Guys understood how sincere we were. Of course, we sought each other out, found each other, and formed a united front, and we started working together. I think the principal argument was that that they were human beings. They were not animals. They deserved to treat each other and themselves better, and they deserved to, to demand the same treatment from security. Not to be beaten and not to be raped and not to be exploited. The only way they could get this was to come together as a, a strength in unity, you know. And I think we made a lot of headway. And eventually, we said, you know, we in for a penny, and for a pound, we should try to form a Black Panther chapter. So we wrote New Orleans chapter. They contacted headquarters, and headquarters said, yeah, do it. If you can, do it. So we formed the only prison branch of the Black Panther Party. We started demanding, not begging, but demanding change from the administration and in turn, the, the state of Louisiana. Now, I was working in the dining hall or the kitchen. Everybody working back in the kitchen worked one day on, one day off. The guys in the front in the dining hall, they were working like 16 hours a day, seven days a week. So I start talking to them about why the, the kitchen workers get one day on, one day off, and y'all work seven days a week, 16 hours a day. It's wrong. It's unfair. It violates your rights as a human being. Just because they come to prison, they didn't lose their rights as human beings. There was a, a work stoppage. Uh, the guys in the front, with the support of the guys in the back, wouldn't feed the MA population. They demanded to see someone to talk about better working condition. After that was resolved, they found Brent Miller dead in a Pine One dormitory. In Angola, Louisiana, black power militants in Angola State prison
0: staged the attacks in which one white guard was knifed to death And another burned by a firebomb, the warden said Tuesday. Brent
1: Miller worked on Pine Unit.
0: Warden Murray Henderson said guard Brent Miller, 23, set upon and stabbed in a dormitory Monday, was killed simply because he happened to be alone and handy." I
1: never had any contact with him because I lived on Hickory Unit.
0: I don't think this guy was picked out at all, said Henderson. He was a popular man. I think it would have happened to any white guard who happened to have been in there at that time,
1: end quote. Everything I learned about him, I learned after the fact, after he had been found murdered.
0: Henderson said 30 prisoners considered to be black militant activists had been taken out of the dormitories and shifted to maximum security cells.
1: What happened is I went to breakfast that morning I ate. Because it was my day off, I could do whatever I wanted to do for that day because I was in Hickory Fort. And I went down and got in the bed, went to sleep. I don't know how long it was. I heard the whistles blowing and security people screaming and howling, you know, get dressed, get on the walk. I see all these security men are running up and down the walk in a panic. Some had machine guns and shotguns and all that, and they were threatening everybody. Nigga this, nigga that, nigga this. They made everybody form a line on the left-hand side of the walk and proceed up the walk towards where the dining hall was located. And when I got in there, I was forced to strip down naked, and my clothes were taken, and I was threatened at gunpoint, and uh, they gave me some new uh, jeans and a shirt and told them to put me in the dungeon. So I actually was the first guy arrested for Brent Miller murder.
0: Woodfox was serving a sentence for armed robbery at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola when he and fellow prisoner Herman Wallace were accused of stabbing prison guard Brent Miller. The two men have always maintained their innocence, saying they were targeted because they had organized a chapter of the Black Panther Party. To...
1: Well, the first trial lasted about two days. I was found guilty. murder the first degree. Yeah. Their intention was to give me a death penalty. But the Supreme Court outlawed the, uh, the death penalty. So they could only give me a life sentence. So they gave me life without parole. Uh, you know, I went in solitary confinement on April 18, 72. And I wasn't released from solitary confinement until uh, my freedom uh, on my, uh, February 19th, 2016. So I actually stayed in solitary confinement, if you want to be explicit, uh, 43 years and 10 months. We must not for a moment lose sight of our goal.
0: To teach the criminal that regardless of his subterfuges, his squirming,
1: his twisting and slimy wriggling, he cannot escape the one extra rule of law enforcement, you can't get away with it. They actually move us to the CCR cell block. Uh, CCR stands for closed cell restriction. You're in a 9x6 cell. There's a metal bunk attached to the wall, a metal uh, commode-zinc combination attached to the wall. Some of the cells had a metal table attached to the wall. Some of the cells had been removed. But virtually you in south, you in the cell for 23 hours out the day. You get one hour a day to shower or whatever. So we must start making plans of how we would survive this short-term plan, you know. Like I said, we had no idea (laughs) that we were going to be in a CCR for decades in solitary confinement, you know. You know, the, the sole purpose... And solitary confinement is to break people, break their spirits, destroy their hopes, destroy their dreams, you know, destroy their abilities to be uh, productive human beings. They told us, y'all going to die in these cells when they first put us in there. You know, like, this your coffee. We realized that if we were going to survive, the one thing we couldn't do is become institutionalized, meaning that we couldn't turn inward to the prison and adapt prison principles, prison culture and stuff, that we had to have something different. The institutional routine pretty much remained the same. Breakfast at a certain time, but you always got only one hour out of the cell every 24. I eventually put TVs there, but these are toys. These don't distract from being confined to, at least for me, being confined to a nine by six area for 23 hours out, of 24 hour period with no end in sight. It's very difficult to try to f- fill your day. With me, it was reading. Sometimes I would read as many as 12 books in a week, trying to improve myself, trying to maintain a philosophy that was geared towards society. We couldn't travel physically, but we could travel philosophically and intellectually from one end of the planet to the other. The cells that were meant to be death chambers became schools and debate halls. We taught ourselves history, geography, math. We taught ourselves the law, and that became one of the many tools we used to bring about change in Angola. They used to put our food on the floor and slide it under the door. We wanted them to cut food slots in the door or in the cell where they can set our food. We went on a hunger strike for that. And that I don't know, that almost killed me, you know. At some point, your body is not getting nourishment, starts feeding on itself. Look like skeleton. That's probably the hardest thing I ever did. And that lasted forty-five days. But we held out. When they agreed to cut slots. They was like, well, we don't have the material right now. We got all the stuff and all that. And, you know, so we said, okay, but we're not going to pull trays under the door. We'll eat. We'll stand up and hold our trays, you know, and eat through the bars. They cut the bars all over the prison. They came to our last. And they cut the cells on our chair last. And since we were at the vanguard of the protests about uh, putting the food on the floor. I always say, if what you believe in or uh, the cause you're fighting for is a noble cause, you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. With all the suffering I've endured, the physical, the mental, the emotional suffering, I've always tried to remember that what I'm doing is work, whatever the consequences I may have to suffer. I took a stand a long time ago, and uh, it has sustained me for the last 40-something years. The only time I ever thought I would go insane was when my mother passed away. I think that's the only time that I came close to breaking. The day I learned my mom had passed away, I was in a state of grieving. I remember I laid down and went to sleep and I woke up and the ceiling was, like, right there. I was sweating, you know, kind of like telling myself, don't panic, don't panic, you know, stay calm, stay calm. Close your eyes, don't look. Eventually, you know, the cell kind of like got back to nine-by-six instead of a matchbox. The claustrophobic attack became real, real bad maybe three, four months that kind of like were just existing. The pain never went away, but it became manageable. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have the adequate words to describe what it's like to be in a state of where nothing you do is going to change your situation. I mean, I went almost 20 years without any disciplinary reports and it made no difference when I went before the review board. No matter how much you change, it makes no difference. Herman
0: Wallace had spent 41 years in solitary confinement. While already serving a 50-year sentence for armed robbery, Wallace, along with Robert King and Albert Woodfox, was convicted of the murder of a prison guard in 1974. On Tuesday, a judge overturned Wallace's conviction on the grounds that he had been denied a fair trial because he was indicted by a grand jury composed solely of men in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment.
1: Herman did 41 years and died three days later from liver cancer, but he died free. He was intelligent, He had that stubborn streak in him, you know. He was a good comrade, but he was a great friend. And I truly miss him. I think the world lost a true giant. I still think of that old man a lot, you know. This is Herman Wallace, along with Atwood Wood Fox, out of solitary confinement here at Angola State Penitentiary. Angola 3 reaches out to you from the belly of the beast. It is not that we have been held captive for over 35 years in prison or that this is important. What is important is that we continue to hold high the principles of the Black Panther Party. Time has changed our bodies, but not our resolve, nor has it taken our strength. Gray hairs adorn our heads, but each grain is buried and cultivated by wisdom bone of life disappearance. You know, I never lost hope that I'd be free. But, you know, emotionally, that's what I was telling myself. But intellectually, I was convinced that I was going to die in prison, you know. But, you know, as you know, things turn out different, you know. Woodfox, who spent more than 43 years in
0: solitary confinement, more than anyone else in the United States, has been released from the Angola
1: prison in Louisiana. Woodfox walked free on Friday. I went to court my birthday. The day I turned 69, I signed out and stuff. We walked out the door, and I could see all the family members. A lot of my supporters was there, and my brothers was there. And I could hear him cheering and clapping and stuff. And my knee buckled, you know. It wasn't obvious because my brother Michael, he grabbed my arm He said, I got you, you know. I got you, you know. Went to where my sister was buried. I said goodbye to her. And the next day, bought some roses and said goodbye to my mama. It was a very, very heavy burden lifted off my shoulders. Because even though I know it wasn't my fault, I still felt it though somehow I had let my mama die. you know, by not saying that final goodbye. You know, we're not the only ones that accomplish great things in solitary, but we the lucky ones. we the ones that got the support. You know, we feel like we have a responsibility and an obligation. A struggle against abuse of solitary, corruption, brutality by security people. For a solitary, if we can't abolish it, then we we're trying to re- restrict its use. We want rehabilitative programs for guys locked in solitary confinement. My ultimate goal is to carry that t- torch I'm carrying, and long enough where when it's, when my time comes, and I can hand that torch to another young man or woman, and say, carry on. He still have something, you know. sometime I expect him to knock on the door. Mistakes been made, or we got a new charge, or something like that, you know? People ask me what it's like to be free. I don't have an answer. Because here, I've always been free, for many, many years, since I was in my 40s. Every morning, I go outside and just sit there by myself. There's a lot of squirrels and birds and stuff. It's a real nice neighborhood, real quiet. Those kind of things that you know. Make me think about what I have not. This is where I belong, you know. This is where I belong.
0: That's it for Love and Radio. This episode is a collaboration with Amnesty International UK. Amnesty International campaigned to have Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox released since 2012. The interview originally appeared in their podcast, In Their Own Words. This version was produced by Sam Lawler and Jesse Carrier. Many of the clips you heard appeared courtesy the following programs. Democracy Now!, The Angola Three, The Black Panthers and The Last Slave Plantation!, the Louisiana Digital Media Archive, Louisiana, the state we're in, the FBI's War on Black America, the History Channel's Big House, Laura Sullivan and Aaron Rath's reporting on NPR, and Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. We'll have links to all those sources up on our website. It's loveandradio.org. Love and Radio is produced by Jesse Carrier and Stephen Jackson. We are a production of PRX's Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia's founding sponsor is the Knight Foundation and made possible through the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. If you live in the U.S., don't forget to vote on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.
1: the show is tough as it goes and it won't